thank you, Eileen. Thank you, Teresa. And also, I'd like to thank the uh, organizers of this meeting for inviting me here. And uh, I'm trying my best within the next 20 minutes to give you an idea of how the field of research is going in, in this disease. And here, obviously, my focus is on systemic therapies of patients with pancreatic cancer. So just to give you this introductory slide, and I'm only going to spend uh, this half a minute trying to tell you that the median overall survival of patients with metastatic disease hasn't really improved that much. We have made some modest incremental benefits, but as you can see that the median survival still falls short of uh, one year, something which we have to do better because we've started on this journey since 1997 with gemcitabine, and still we are a bit short of what we would say our first step in getting past the year. However, there is no doubt that we are stuck with chemotherapy for a while, and therefore we need to really see how we can improve on what we have in our hand at the time. People talk about increasing the cytotoxic power instead of using two drugs, use three drugs or four drugs, and the question is, is that really the right way to go? Because this is a disease where the therapeutic index, the benefit versus risk, is also very shallow. The other way of doing it is that we, we can put rational sequencing of combinations of drugs which are tolerable to the patient, because as you will see, keeping the patient exposed to cytotoxic therapy for the longest really works in this disease, and we have to do that. But then again, patients cannot tolerate intensive treatment for a long time. And then the question of maintenance after a shorter course of induction therapy appears to be something which you may be starting to think of, especially when we start off with a, a regimen like Folferinox. And finally, and this is something maybe futuristic, but happened at least in colon cancer in our memory. Maybe we'll be starting at some point to talk about ablative or surgical strategies in patients who have residual disease after successful induction therapy. Just briefly, when it comes to maintenance therapy, this was an interesting abstract we heard about uh, in ASCO this year, looking at Prodige 35, where they wanted to do something like Optimax, where you can start and stop. And certainly, if, you, if you're able to give the patient treatment and they're responding or stable and you discontinue the intensive treatment and give the maintenance via fulucovorin, there is room here for getting patients into a better quality maybe, although I really need to see more data on this. But certainly, this is a study which fits a regimen like Folfrenox in terms of trying to see whether you can drop the two drugs and give the patient a better tolerance to the treatment. And as you can see from the table, the outcomes are pretty comparable. However, if you go to another regimen, which is Folfiri, alternating with gemcitabine, that regimen was inferior, so no one's recommending that. Now, what about target therapies? Now, unfortunately, when we look at target therapies, we have failed in this disease. This is a, a, a list which I compile and each time I give a talk, I have to update it. This is looking at December 2015 until, let's say, May 2018. And you can see that a number of targets, a number of drugs, and thousands of, or many hundreds, and even thousands of patients failed. And these targets really included a variety of, of signaling pathways and even immunotherapy. So this should be a concern for us and maybe a, a, a stimulus to start to think in a different way. In my opinion, there should be a shift of paradigm, and in fact, I think it's already starting from targeting isolated gene or gene pa or pathway where there are no driver genes that we know of in this disease. KRAS is a driver gene, maybe, but we can't touch it. Or the complex biology redundancy of the pa pathways. And also, at this point in time, it's hard for me to tell you that there's a gene mutation that really works well in predicting 
um, survival of patients or prognosis, although there are a lot of attempts to do that. However, if we move, move into modifying the unique aspects of the biology of this disease that distinguishes this disease, and some of them obviously are things which we see in other cancers, and in these situations we have better correlation with outcome. There are certain aspects of the disease that biologically are identified and they can be correlated to outcome even as we speak. And also there are opportunities for rational drug combinations because probably there will be combination, but at least if we think of it more of a biology, we're better off trying to think of a combination. And finally, we may benefit from the evolving classification systems that are based on biology from patient samples. And this is just an example. If you look at the listing of the genes on, on, the, on the left side to me, uh, you can see that the major genes mutated are the KRAS and the tumor suppressor genes that at this point in time are extremely difficult to target. And then you have a number of other genes that are mutated at a low frequency, but none of these are eerily genes that we can go after the product, like a kinase, with very, very few exceptions. So for majority of patients, it's not going to work. Now, talking about, bi about biology, we have at least one aspect of biology that is really uh, very exploitable at this point in time, at least from uh, preclinical uh, evaluations, including patient samples, looking at outcome of patients, retrospective analyses, and these are the DNA repair defects that these tumors can have. And again, this is exploitable. And I want to really make sure you understand here that I'm not only talking about BRCA1 or 2. It's for simplicity for us as clinicians, we have stuck with these two. But the DNA repair extends beyond that. But the problem is, is measuring, what, how can you measure in clinical samples and make a reasonable conclusion on which patients can benefit? But that's where the subclassifications based on biology will help us. But certainly we can, we can put together PALB2, PALB ATM, other things. But this is more work to be done. However, the more robust data at this time is emerging into BRCA, uh, BRCA1 or 2 mutated patients. Now, Dr. O'Reilly did a great job in looking at uh, uh, the value of platinum plus PARP inhibitors, and she had a very nice um, uh, paper recently in, in cancer. And you can see that patients who are BRCA mutated certainly uh, do better than patients who have no mutation when treated with platinum comes on with PARP inhibitors. My first ever patient I treated with gemcitabine cisplatin was a younger in her 30s, and she had so, so good response that we resected part of the liver. That patient could have easily had a BRCA mutation. However, we need more pr uh, the, uh, prospective data, and there's a study that is currently ongoing looking at the gemcitabine cisplatin plus minus valeparib. Now, this is interesting, but uh, certainly the science is also moving forward, as I said. Can we extend the range of the DNA repair uh, abnormalities, but also can we get a better, better uh, PARP inhibitor, because the Veleparib may be not the most uh, uh, or the best one we have. In fact, at the Southwest Oncology Group at SWAG, we had a study with using Veleparib uh, with Fulfiri plus, uh, Fulfiri plus minus Veleparib, and that study failed. So it may be that we have to have a better, uh, a better um, PARP inhibitor. One of the very intriguing studies which looks into maintenance, uh, which I'm sure some of you know very well about, is the, is the study called POLO, which is an international trial. And in this study, in 145 patients, now you may think 145 is not a large number, but try to screen so many people to get to this number. Those are patients who get a good response on a platinum compound, and then they go on a laparib as a maintenance treatment. So this is really going to be a very good trial.
In fact, to the point that uh, we are thinking in the U.S. to do an adjuvant trial in patients who also are BRCA mutated, where they finish the adjuvant treatment and they can be maintained on a uh, PARP inhibitor. Again, you have to screen many patients. Uh, in my opinion, in my experience, 5% uh, of my patients I see are BRCA mutated. But again, as this was indicated before, it depends where you live also in the United States. Now, moving on to another important biology aspect of this disease is the, mi the microenvironment and the stroma. Now, you don't have the to, to be a pathologist to look at this thing and say, wow, most of it is, just looks like it's junk. In fact, it's not junk. Some of it may be. It's a stroma fibrosis. But this, this, this material also contains a lot of active cells, inflammatory immune cells, maybe not the ones we like to see, but certainly very desmoplastic. When it comes to immune cells, we don't see that many T cells, and we see maybe more of the cells that are immune suppressive. So certainly a problem. And, um, and there are a number of uh, approaches trying to target the stroma and the stromal elements. I'm putting here hedgehog inhibitors. Now, someone might tell, might tell me, why did you put that? It was a failure in the clinical trials. But certainly based on subsequent uh, going back to the lab, which doesn't happen often, it was clear that we did the clinical trials wrong. And I I'm hope that someone will go back and try to test these agents again. But the one which is really more advanced in the, in the testing is the, is the hyaluronan targeting PEC-PH20. And, and, and again, I'll, I'll go a bit more detail about that study. And then CD40 agonists, vitamin D, FAC inhibitors. These are the select number of agents that are currently thought to be targeting the stroma. But unfortunately, they, you can think of them all, not purely of the stroma, but they, they can also have interaction with, with, for example, immunotherapy, as you will see in a minute. Now, the story of the hyaluronan and PEC-PH20 is, is, uh, is based on a, a phase two trial that showed that only in patients who, who are expressing, tumors are expressing or overexpressing hyaluronan, they be benefited from gemsabinap, bactitaxel, plus the PEC-PH20. Patients who did not ex overexpress that did not respond. Now, just to remind you that this drug also can cause increased venous thromboembolic events, and therefore when we use it, we combine it with low molecular heparin. We tried aspirin, did not work. But you have to give a good dose of low molecular heparin, one milligram per kilogram, or what's the equivalent of it every day. This led to a phase three trial, which is only in patients who overexpress the protein. And I can tell you that the estimate is 40%, but it may be less. But that's the estimate of the patients who will end up getting the drug based on the biomarker. Now, unfortunately, at the Southwest Oncology Group, uh, we did a study which we had to finish early or stop early uh, because the curves were upside down. In other words, the control arm did, in fact, much better than the experimental arm. And um, when we looked at the data, one of the things was that patients who received the uh, the combination had more toxicity, therefore they had to stop the treatment early. F median cycles four versus eight. And you can see that the response rate was less. So this study will give you a couple of lessons. One is when you do a study in an unselected group of patients, it's hard to come to a conclusion, although one would be a bit surprised to think that if we selected only patients who have high IHA, we would have gotten a much different result. But the second point, which is very important, is that tolerability, tolerability, tolerability. Because when you're treating with treatments that you have to terminate early because of toxicity, these are failed treatments. Well, by definition, they are treatment failure. 
So in this trial, we, we proved the point that we could have done better by making the, uh, the combination more tolerable. However, we still support the phase three trial, which is done in selected patients using a different cytotoxic platform. Now, tumor metabolism is a bit neglected, but not forgotten. In fact, more recently, people have gotten more interest in it. And the interest in tumor metabolism, you know, the Warburg effect, you're familiar with the switching of the uh, metabolism to an anaerobic glycolysis. All these things have very close interaction with the rest of the biology of the disease. The KRAS mutation comes into it, and many other, like drug resistance, etc. Now, I'm not an expert, I don't want to spend much time on it, but just to tell you that this is something now we're, going to, we're looking into. One of the drugs is the CPI-613, which is a, a, a drug with dual action on uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase and also ketoglutate dehydrogenase. And, um, and this drug has gone into preclinical work, but also gone into a pilot phase two trial, pilot phase, actually phase one slash two, single arm, I meant. And in this trial, they showed that there was some significant benefit from the combination. But the most important thing is that patients who had a response, they survived very long, long enough to make it interesting for this uh, to go to a, a, a phase three trial. But something you have to really notice here is that the dose of the uh, fulfenox here is very modified. The oxaloplatin down to 65 and ironotecan down to 140. So this is one aspect of developing combinations with fulfenox where it may be that we really have to be a bit generous in our dose reductions to, to make the combination uh, worth, worthwhile. And I, I gave you the example of our study in SWOG, with, which did not go as well. This is a phase three trial, which will include 500 patients, and it's going to be having a primary endpoint of response rates and progression-free survival. It's going to be a global trial, including Europe. And uh, in this trial, uh, again, the dose will be, uh, will be lower, and the FDA generously approved to use a control arm of full dose for Freonox, although that, that has something to be discussed a bit later on again with the FDA. So this trial hopefully will go live in August. Another study which was presented in ESMO by Dr. Hamel a couple of years ago was the L-asparaginase. L-asparaginase is very well known to you guys who do hematology, cancers. We didn't use it in solid tumors, but there is room for it to be used in solid tumors or pancreatic cancer at least. And in this trial, combined with uh, uh, chemotherapy in the second line, mainly for Folfox, there was a survival benefit. To, my, to the best of my knowledge, this is going into a, a randomized trial in the second line, combining with, with Folfox. So a couple of examples for you of drugs that are a bit ahead in the, in the area of the uh, uh, metabolism. Now, what about uh, immunotherapy? Well, immunotherapy is a bit of a uh, challenge here. Uh, we think that pancreas cancers are not immunogenic. Why? Well, no, not enough in T cells in, in, in the tumor, or they're sitting at the periphery. They don't want to come in because they're afraid. Or if they're even inside, then they're not functioning well because the tumor burden is, uh, mutational burden is low. And also, um, uh, there are some other cells that are really fighting those T cells back. And at this point in time, the traditional single-agent approach, for example, with a PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor, or even a vaccine, hasn't really worked that well in this disease. But the question is, are we giving up? Uh, the answer is <clears throat> no. 
Now, this was a study that uh, Dr. O'Reilly led, which was a combination of PD-1 inhibitor and also a CTLA-4 inhibitor. This was presented in ASCO, uh, ASCO GI. And you can see here that whether single agent or combination, there isn't really much uh, excitement here. So it fits what we know about this disease biologically, but also tells us that we have to do something different. Now, the only drug currently that we use is, as you know, a PD-1 inhibitor. Uh, the only situation that when you have patients who have MSI high, and for us it's not a problem, it's an FDA-approved indication. But those patients are only 1% to 2%. Uh, and there's always a debate whether you have to test all patients you have for MSI. Uh, and in, in fact, it depends where you work. In my institution, we do test every patient who have a stage 4 disease for not only MSI but for other reasons. Uh, but that's something which is an ongoing debate, at least in the United States. Now, talking about uh, immunotherapy, we also have to really keep in mind there are other cells that are cooperating to make the immune system not work well. And therefore, we have to think of other research which has to go with it. This is one example of targeting the myeloid cells from the, coming from the bone marrow that travel all the way from the bone marrow to the tumor environment, and they, they do a number of things, including immune suppression. And CCR2 blockade appears to be helping when you add to chemotherapy. We don't know what happens when you add to immunotherapy. But at this point in time, unfortunately, at least to the best of my own knowledge, the drugs that I knew about CCR2 inhibitors are not going to go, are not going forward, at least in the typical combination with chemotherapy. So, so, but there's still room, I think, for this approach, because based on a pilot trial on the right, there was some significant improvement in the outcome of patients in a single-arm trial when combined with chemotherapy. So when you open the book and you try to see what combinations I can do with immunotherapy, uh, it's really, you have to spend hours because you don't know how to really think about it because there's so many. But I'm just going to make it simple for you. In pancreatic cancer, we have a number of major combinations that are being tested. So I try to summarize a lot of work for you. So it's combination with anti-CXCR4, um, and there is combination with chemotherapy, always there will be. And there's combination with C CSF1R, which there was interesting uh, abstract earlier in the year or last year. With vaccines, continue to be that. Radiation therapy, the abscopal effect, trying to create more antigens in the body to, to make the immune cells more active. And also CD4 agonist combination. In fact, some of these are used in other combinations with chemotherapy, not only with PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors. So these are the major combinations that are currently being tested. Now, there are, other, there are other drugs that are currently uh, in clinical trials that uh, some of them are very close to be announced whether the clinical trial was positive. You have the ibrutinib, which is a BTK inhibitor. Again, works on the inflammatory component on the mast cells, activates the T cells. You have the IL-10, which also expands the uh, cytotoxic T cells. It's in the second line, actually, with Folfox. And there was a presentation here last year by Dr. Randolph Hecht on, this, uh, on the pilot trial. You also have a stem cell target, which is the stat, targeting STAT3 signaling in the stem cell. And this is a, a trial that is the largest in the history of pancreatic cancer. It has more than uh, 1,100 patients, actually. And then you have a, a dual-action monoclonal antibody, uh, uh, antibody, which is targeting IGF-1R and ERB-3. And here, the, the thought is that ERB-3 is a uh, resistance uh, 
a signaling pathway. And in fact, this study is also has a biomarker linked to it, which is the free IGF circuit uh, in the blood. So a number of trials, which hopefully will be, these are trials that are, except maybe for the STAT3 uh, and the IL-10, the other two are, are more closer for, uh, uh, for reporting. So as a clinician, where does this really leave me in 2018? And in my opinion, that this is really a reality. So starting on the left, you have patients who have received adjuvant chemotherapy, and they relapse within two, six months. And if they receive Wolfranox, then you know where you go. And if they receive um, a gemcitabine-based treatment, then you also have the options to follow that. In the middle, the bulk of the patients come to us with stage four disease. And if you look at PS02, then you have more options. If you have PS3, still we treat them with chemotherapy, sometimes with combination, because we think that the symptoms are related to the disease. And if you can downsize the disease, you can get the patient to feel better. It's a, it's a, per, a patient by patient uh, uh, decision. And if you have patients who have uh, BRCA mutated, then in my opinion, they should go on a platinum-based com combination. And the question is, do you give them oxaloplatin or cisplatin? I have, again, more experience with cisplatin, believing it's a better drug in this situation. And PARP inhibitor, adding it to chemotherapy, still I think we need to get some safety data. And, but, in the, but after they progress on the frontline treatment, they might go on a PARP inhibitor alone if you can get it uh, from a drug company. Or you can even maintain them. I have a patient I'm maintaining on a PARP inhibitor. The MSI high... Uh, again, I don't know if you can justify starting with a PD-1 inhibitor, but certainly a chemotherapy, and if they progress, I go, I go to a PD-1 inhibitor. And those, I put 10% there in terms of population, because I'm hoping that that segment is going to expand with time. Now, expand with time because we have the subclassifiers, and there are several systems, and you can see that if, they, if you try to overlap them, there is overlap there, but there is also outlying information you get. And the question is, can we make this a bit more user-friendly for the clinician, for like some simple-minded like myself to try to use it in designing clinical trials? Um, I, I think it will happen, but I think we have to be more cooperative together in putting data together to get those subclassifiers in a better shape to really reflect biology in a, in a, in a more robust way. So just to conclude, the conventional cytotoxic we use have made incremental benefits. They're modest, but we have to make them better. We have to learn how to use these drugs that we have now in our possession to make it more uh, uh, better for the patient to have prolonged exposure, but also to have a quality of life. And, uh, and, and, and this means it's not radiation, it's rational target therapies. I'm sorry, traditional target therapies, I should say, but they really failed so far, like EGFR, IGF-1R, and VEGF, all these things failed. And, and the paradigm shift is now to really link biology to, to drug development rather than just single drug target, a, a single gene target. And there are prog some prog uh, promising areas which I talked to you about. And at this point in time, if you know, immunotherapy fails at its, at its classical way we'd like it to be, treat non-small cell with PD-1, treat melanoma, we can't do that in this disease. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working on making it work by using combinations in a better way. So I'd like to thank you all for your attention. I'd like to thank for organizers for inviting me. And, um, and I also like to remind you that I, had, I was asked to remind you that there's another meeting coming on pancreatic cancer uh, expert panel. Thank you very much.